Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio station where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords. My name is John Keeley. This is the 385th show of ROI, and our noted guest for today's show is Angie Weikert, Manager of Artifact Acquisitions and Assessing, assessing for the National Pearl Butt Museum. Uh, she is going to talk to us about the National Pearl Butt Museum and saving the Fairport fish hatchery. The history buffer today's show is Ed Broders. Uh, the show's theme song is Kayla's Theme, which was written and performed by Mark Zap Zaptel. Our producer and engineer is, as always, is Mr. David Baker. This is the opening segment of the show called Farouk Dinarin, and today we'll be talking about the National Pearl Button Museum and Saving the Fairport Fish Hatchery with Angie Weikert, Manager of Artifact Acquisitions and Accessioning for the National Pearl Button Museum. Welcome to the show, Angie. Hi, how are you? I'm really good. We're very happy to have you on the show. So my first question is just to give us a little bit of background on how the National Pearl Button Museum came into being. There were some people who had collections of buttons uh, who thought they should be displayed. Muscatine was the pearl button capital of the world. We were making 1.5 billion buttons in the early days of the 1900s. Um, one, that's 1.5 billion buttons a year for about 20 years. Um, a lot of the families here in town had a lot of button collections and thought they should be displayed. And so they started displaying them in a store window during one of our Christmas walks. And uh, more and more families saw these collections and decided to contribute. And eventually, a lot of these collections came into um, being, and they decided a museum should be formed. And so some families all got together and um, formed this museum, which originally was called the Muscatine History and Industry Center. And um, about a year and a half ago, we decided that the button industry was kind of, the button museum, I'm sorry, was bringing people into the doors. Um, not that our industry is not important, but people were coming to see the buttons. And so we changed the name to the National Pearl Button Museum, and that's what we are now. Okay. Um, can you give our listeners um, a little history about Muscatine's uh, pearl button pass. Uh, I mean, uh, I grew up uh, just outside of uh, Buffalo, Iowa, so I remember as a kid my grandparents and parents talking about how this was such a huge moneymaker for, uh, uh, you know, southeastern Iowa. Uh, what brought about this uh, massive business for, as you said, for almost 30 years? And uh, I mean, what was it that made this a, uh, a go? There was a gentleman named John Beppel who actually immigrated here from Germany. He was making pearl buttons in Germany, but because of a lack of shell and high tariffs, he was looking for a new outlet for his buttons uh, or uh, looking for a new um, source of shell. And a friend of his had sent him a shell from Muscatine or the area, and he decided he was going to immigrate to the United States. And between the Quad Cities and Muscatine, the Mississippi River actually runs east to west, and it's the, it slows the water down uh, considerably, and the mussel shell really liked that slower water. And so at that time, the Mississippi River used to run from bluff to bluff in our area, and it was very shallow, and we had an abundant amount of shell 
So he immigrates to Muscatine, starts our first button factory. And at that time, wearing pearl buttons on your clothes was a symbol of wealth. And it, at that time, you know, there's uh, a big demand for pearl buttons. Um, across the world, we were supplying a third of the world's pearl buttons in the early 1920s. And Muscatine ended up having 24 button factories or finishing plants. Um, we had a population of 18,000 people at that time. Two-thirds of those people worked in the button industry. It supplied um, jobs for two-thirds of our population. Um, there was a, you know, a lot of shell. Um, eventually, they pretty much decimated all the shell in our part of the river, and we started bringing in shell from 19 different states across the center of the United States to supply our button plants with enough shell to make those 1.5 billion buttons a year. Um, we were shipping them out all over the world, and our buttons were high-quality buttons. They were, in, they were in demand all over the world. Okay, okay so Angie, I, I have to ask because I have totally no clue. Uh, <laughs> what goes into the process of making a pearl button? I mean, I'm trying to imagine what a pearl button factory looks like, and and unfortunately, all I'm seeing is like drill presses punching holes <laughs> into shells, and that it can't be that that can't be right. So, so kind of tell me what the the pearl button manufacturing process was. Clamors would go out into the river and fish the the shell out of the river, and they were paid by the pound and the quality of the shell. Those shells would be brought in, um, taken to blanking companies. Now, blanking companies were all up and down the Mississippi River, and they would drill out uh, button blanks depending upon the size of the blanks that were required at the time. There were all different size blanks. Now, these blanks would be drilled out and then sent to Muscatine, and they would be taken to the finishing plants, which were here in Muscatine. And like I said, in the early 1900s, we had about 24 finishing plants. Um, those finishing plants would then turn those button blanks into the finished buttons. And we had a family here in town named the Berry family, who were an Irish family, who developed machines that could make those buttons from start to finish. There was one machine, it was called the Berry Matic machine, and most of the button plants here in Muscatine had those uh, machines in their factories. And one person could sit in front of a machine feeding button blanks into these machines all day long, and that would... Um, you know, they would rotate around on these machines and that would make a button from start to finish. And it's said that uh, a pearl button was handled 34 different times from the beginning to the end of its production. Okay. Could you please inform our listeners, as you said, uh, pearl buttons are high society uh, items that were used to definitely show the status of wealth. What was the cost if, if let's say, you know, uh, Mr. Swords, my co-host, he's just loaded with money. If he wanted to buy some of these or to obtain them, I know there's probably variances, but what was the average range of a cost for a person to buy this? Um, that I, I can't tell you because um, we really don't have a, a good handle on what the, what the cost at that time was. Um, I know we've got some button cards here in the museum um, that are marked. You could buy a button, a, a card of buttons that might have 12 buttons on it. Um, at, that si at that time, they might be a nickel. Um, they might be um, 10 cents. They might be 25 cents. I can tell you that back in the day, um, in the early, early times when um, a lot of these button companies were hiring people to work, 
home workers were hired to sew these buttons onto button cards. And the home workers were paid a penny for every five cards that they were sewing. And generally, there were 12 buttons on a card. Um, so at that time, you know, in these days, it doesn't sound like, ex- you know, an expensive amount of uh, money to buy these cards or buy these buttons. But at that time, people were bringing home in 2 and $3 a week working in these factories. So, you know, buttons were, you know, expensive at that time. So it's, it's kind of hard to give you a price on what, what these buttons were running at that time. Okay, uh, just a follow-up question. Where did, were these... Uh, buttons like short, uh, shipped to factories in like New York and Chicago. I mean, can you give us a general idea where they were to make, put into fine clothes? Yeah, they were shipped all over the world. Um, a lot of the, the companies that they were shipping these to were garment industries in New York, um, Chicago, Boston. Um, they were shipped across the, um, the ocean to, uh, European, um, clothing, um, suppliers. Um, they were shipped to uh, sometimes the West Coast, but most generally the East Coast had most of the garment industries in, in like New York City. And so they had salesmen that would travel all over the, the country on trains a lot of times with suitcases full of sample cards. And they, that's how they would sell a lot of their, their buttons. They would send these salesmen out. The salesmen would go to the garment industries um, with their sample cards. And then once the garment industries decided what buttons they wanted, they would send the messages back, usually by telegram, um, let the button companies know what buttons they've sold, and then those button com- or the companies would then box them up into um, gross boxes, and then send the the gross boxes out, and then they would sew those onto the garments that were that were sold. Okay. Okay, uh, Angie, this is going to be the last question for our, for this segment. So I'm just curious, at the museum, um, how many buttons do you have in your collection? <laughs> Millions. <laughs> um, we have um, it's boxes and boxes of buttons. Um, we've been lucky enough to have enough families here in town that um, have family members who worked in the button industries that have donated a lot of their button collections to our museum. Um, we have showcases in the center of the of the downstairs that showcase a lot of the different kinds of buttons that they have. And then we have a supply um, of buttons from some of the button factories that have gone out of business of what the gross buttons would look like. So we've got some that are in barrels or boxes of how they would ship them out to some of the companies. Um, so we've been lucky enough to, to have a supply of buttons to show people actually how they either ship them out or how they were sold um, to people off the, you know, on the street or to the garment industries. So just okay. as a follow-up then, my question would be, so how much of your collection is on display? Um, probably half of our collection is on display. Um, wow. And we try to rotate our collection out to where um, people get to see different things at different times of the year. Um, we have collections that are more geared towards Christmas. We have collections that are more geared towards the summer. Um, we also have collections that are politically um, associated um, campaign pins and and buttons and things like that um, that are associated with pearl buttons and we try to rotate our collections out so it's not always the same thing all the time. Okay, we have a lot more to talk about so please stay tuned for the next segment of our show. This is ROI on KALA St. Ambrose University, one hundred six point one FM. In times of joy. In moments of grief. 
Broadcasters come through, even when all else fails. Today, with more ways than ever to experience the moments that transform our lives, Americans still choose broadcast radio and television more than all other media combined. We are the local broadcasters of radio and television, reaching more people, touching more lives. Brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hello and welcome back to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords. And my name is John Keeley. This is the second segment of our show, referred to as The Kitchen Table. Our guest for today is Angie Weikert, Manager of Artifact Acquisitions and Assessing, for the National Pearl Button Museum. And we're talking about the National Pearl Button Museum and the saving of the Fairport Fish Hatchery. Our history buff here for today's show is Rick Sweet. Um, Rick, since you're a man who loves to push buttons, you get the first question. Yes, I've uh, not graduated yet to Velcro, so I love buttons. <laughs> <laughs> Angie, uh, <laughs> Angie, I was wondering, uh, how many years before uh, the uh, the uh, shells in the river, as we said in the mining industry, uh, panned out that, that uh, it was decimated and you had to go to other states to get uh, get shells? How long did it take for that to happen? It didn't take long. Um, the Mr. Beppel actually immigrated here in about 1897, and by about 1906, 1907, they started searching farther and farther out for shell. Um, and that's kind of where the Fairport Fish Hatchery comes in in about 1910, 1912. Um, we started branching out farther and farther to tributaries and rivers um, looking for more shell, and we started bringing them in by barge and train car to Muscatine to be made into pearl buttons. Um, we ended up going, we've got uh, employee records as far down as um, Louisiana, um, southern Missouri, Tennessee, uh, Indiana, wow. you know, all, all the, the states along the Mississippi River corridor um, bringing shell in um, to make our buttons. Okay. I, I must admit, uh, I didn't know the Fairport Fish actually because I teach driver's ed Muscatine and the Bluest of Moons. I never knew that it was established that long ago. Can you give us a little, uh, listeners, a uh, uh, basic history on uh, on its existence and how it's contributed to the community? Sure. The Fairport Fish Hatchery was actually established and dedicated in 1912, and it was um, actually established for propagating mussels for the pearl button industry. Um, in about 1910, the owners of the button companies dis discovered that uh, mussels grow very slowly in the water, and they needed a way to farm these mussels in the river. And so the owners of the button companies all pulled their money together and went to the U.S. government and asked the government for help in order to um, start propagating mussels in the river. And so the government built the Fairport Biological Station, which is located in Fairport, specifically for propagating mussels in the river for the button industry. And it was the first biological station built west of the Mississippi. Um, and so they started propagating mussels in the river 
for the button industry and tried that for a few years, and it actually failed because they didn't understand how the mussels um, actually grew in the river, and the river had been uh, polluted pretty badly from the lumber industry. And so eventually, about uh, 20 years after it was established, it was turned over to the Fish and Wildlife to start propagating fish for um, um, farm ponds and things around the around the area, and then as of about two months ago, we started um, working with uh, different entities here in the area to start growing mussels at a fish hatchery again. Cool. cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Angie, so m- to go back to to the museum, um, you're lucky enough to have this, this sort of in-house acquisition system. Um, have you uh, have you tried to do some acquisitioning outside of the area since since buttons were going so many places and involved in so many? Um, I'm just wondering. I haven't had a chance to get to the museum yet. I'm going to get to do that in two weeks, which I'm really excited about. Mm-hmm. Um, so, do we have examples, for example, at the museum of clothing with pearl buttons on it, so we could kind of see what it looks like and how difficult has that process of outside acquisitions been for you and the museum um we have a few um items that have uh, of clothing that have pearl buttons on them most of them are like baby clothes um in one of our areas of the museum um as far as outside acquisitions what do you mean Uh, i'm just thinking of you know are you looking at um estate sales and things like that where where clothing or buttons may turn up um that you're purchasing because they would be different or um rare within your collection or whatever we always look at um items that might be out there um we always um uh, one of our good um sources is goodwill (laughs) to be honest um but for the most part most everything that's in our museum has been donated to us from um, people who have these in their collections or maybe cleaning out grandma's attic or might be cleaning out an aunt's a home or or something and it's usually brought to us um pretty much right now our museum is to capacity um we have four walls that are is pretty much full um we try to rotate things out from you know what we have in our we have a storage area in our basement and we try to rotate things out as much as we can um but we don't have a lot of space right now to expand um so we we're kind of um, to the point where we're very particular on what we bring in now, um, just because of a space um, constraint. Okay. Rick. Yeah, Angie, uh, you mentioned earlier that you have uh, millions of buttons. Uh, uh, since I'm a collector of rocks and, uh, and history books, nothing is really of great value. Uh, do you have uh, some... Uh, buttons that uh, exotic uh, as they may be that are are uh, of high value, or are they all still worth uh, five cents to twenty five cents a piece? Um, we have some buttons that are that are worth a little more than others. Um, some of them are are quite a bit more intricate than others. Um, some have been hand carved. Some are, are machine-made. Um, we have other items in here that are not necessarily buttons but have been carved from shell. We have, like, a key to the city. We have an exotic oh. fan that has been carved. Um, so it's not necessarily – we don't necessarily have all buttons in our museum. 
Um, there are some items in some of our display cases that were actually carved by the Fort Madison Penitentiary inmates. Um, that was a project that they had for a while. Um, so it's not all buttons that we have in here. Um, there's also displays of button cards. Um, button cards that have buttons on them range in price. Some of them are worth five cents and some of them are worth sometimes 45 and 50 dollars a piece. Um, it depends on the rarity of the card. So it just depends on kind of what you're looking at as far as what the value is. Sure. Uh, a question, of course, all uh, products like this that are very much in demand, uh, they have a sales pitch. Uh, does your museum or is there, what's the record uh, or recorded history of uh, the Muscatine Pearl Button? Was there a spokesperson that kind of represented I know that this is decades and decades ago, but it always amazes me how you'll find some, some hook method that was used to get the product across. Um, are you, do you know of any of those that would, or does your museum have any of those past records? We have some, we have some advertisements. Um, they're like printed advertisements that are on some of our storyboards that they used for promoting the, the pearl buttons. Um, but there wasn't really one spokesperson. There wasn't really one, one, um, like one clam or one um, spokesperson that actually went out and sold the pearl buttons. Um, there wasn't one company that stood out over the other um, really in town that, that, you, that really stands out. Um, okay. I've done all the acquisition here in the museum, and I really haven't come across anything that really um, kind of stands out over anything else. Okay, okay so Angie, I'm, I'm back to thinking about the logistics of running a museum. Um, my sense is that the, the creation of the museum was very much sort of a labor of love. Um, and, and so uh, I'm, I'm wondering how many staff members you have, and we've done a lot of interviewing with museums and, and finance operating finances is always an issue. Um, so are, are you, um, relying mostly on family donations or things like that? Are you doing grants and things from, um, city, state, and federal governments? How, uh, how's that part of the museum being run? There are, um, four full-time people here. Um, or I should say three full-time people, one part-time person, but she comes, she's kind of a, um, as we need her person. Um, we rely on, um, 40% of our budget is on, um, by sponsorship or a membership by a lot of the industries that are here in town. Um, our Pearl Button Museum is, uh, takes care of our downstairs um, portion of our museum. We also have an upstairs portion where some of our industries display um, display boards and, and advertisements, and, and it kind of, they kind of tout their industry. They pay um, per space um, to advertise, and that kind of helps support our museum a little bit. And then we rely on donations from people coming in the door. Um, we also got a generous um, endowment from a um, member of our community that helps support us. Um, but most of the time, most of our budget is from donations. Um, we don't receive any city money, any um, um, support through the city. Um, we do apply grant for grant to help support us. Um, those, it's, it's hard to um, be awarded a grant when you're in competition with a lot of other small museums across the state of Iowa or across the nation. And so grants are very hard to 
um, to come by, but we do apply for mm-hmm. grants, and um, that's that's about it. All right. We do do a mem- we do do a membership drive once a year, and we're kind of in the membership or in the middle of our membership drive right now, um, and that's once a year. Um, but but that's pretty much it. And and so Angie, if someone were looking to become a member of the uh, Pearl Button Museum, how would they do that? They would just contact us, or you can go through our website. Um, they can contact muscatinehistory.org. Um, we have a, a little link on there that they can become a member, or they can contact the museum, um, either stopping in, or they can call us, and we can get them set up with a membership. Okay. Um, a question dealing with uh, now it's, it's kind of it's very difficult with uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, but uh, does your museum work out with, uh, or I should say work out, but um, work with uh, the school districts in the surrounding communities, like they have field trips to come and see your fantastic museum, or is that something in the future? Because I know you guys are relatively new. Well, we do do um, field trips. Uh, most of the time when the field trips come through, we get the younger kids. And we really prefer the older kids to come through because the younger kids, it's hard to keep their attention. We don't have a lot of hands-on displays in our museum, um, and it's hard to keep the attention of the younger kids. We have started a, like a scavenger hunt, and that has worked really well um, with the kids. Um, they don't teach... <coughs> Um, local history in our schools anymore. And so it's really hard to get the kids interested in any kind of history at all. The kids like to come and play in the buttons, and it's really hard to control them when they're, when they're trying to play in the buttons. Um, <laughs> but, uh, um, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to teach them this history, and they, they really don't have an interest in it anymore. And so with the scavenger hunt, it does, give them, uh, it does get them excited about it a little bit, but trying to get the older kids to come in is really difficult. Um, it doesn't fit into the curriculum of the, the school districts now. And so we're trying really hard to get into those school district curriculums, and we're trying to get the attention of the kids, but it's been really difficult. Yeah, and I'm sure COVID-19 has not helped you. No, it hasn't. No, it hasn't. All right. Um, well, that's a nice segue to our last question for this segment. Um, Angie, why do you think knowing about the National Pearl Button Museum is relevant in today's world? It's important to know about your history. Um, mostly um, mistakes were made. Um, they need to know it's in, environmental mistakes were made, um, industry mistakes were made, and you need to know about that so they aren't repeated. Um, we teach a lot about um, the environment in our museum um, as far as the muscle population and repropagating muscles. We teach a lot about that in our museum. Um, we teach a lot about what the industry did for muscatine. It supported a lot of muscatine uh, for many years, and we teach a lot about that in here. Um, it's just a, um, it's important to know what your ancestors did and, and how muscatine was made, and this really did make muscatine for a long time. Okay. When we come back, we'll wrap things up, so please stay tuned. This is ROI on KALA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. You're listening to Relevant or Irrelevant. 
This series is produced at St. Ambrose University's KALA Radio and has been honored by the Midwest Broadcast Journalists Association and the Iowa Broadcast News Association for excellence in public affairs journalism. You can hear this edition of ROI and many previous programs in this series by visiting Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, plus Apple Podcasts. ROI airs Friday nights at 9.30 p.m. on KALA HD2 and can also be heard at 106.1 FM in the Metropolitan Quad City area. You can stream this show every Friday night at TuneIn.com. Search for KALA HD2. This concludes our 385th show of ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. Our producer and engineer is Dave Baker. Our program manager is Rick Sweet. And the theme song for our show is titled Kayla's Theme and was written and performed by Mark Zapp Zappadal. My name is Jay Swords. My name is John Keeley. We would like to thank our guest, Angie Weichert, manager of Artifact Acquisitions and Assessing for the National Pearl Button Museum, who talked with us about the National Pearl Button Museum and saving the Fairport Fish Hatchery. The History Bus for today's show was Rick Sweet. This is ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, on KALA. The views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of St. Ambrose University or KALA. We would like to wish all our listeners to experience the great Basutu proverb, Holzo Pula Nala, peace, reign, and prosperity. And remember, historians are horrible fortune tellers. Good night. Good night.